What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I, lay, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. We are in this section of Romans chapter 9, verses Romans 9 to 11, which deals with God's sovereignty. And it dawned on me this week that, you know, we use that expression sovereignty and God's sovereignty and we may not all mean the same thing or understand it the same way and many times and we saw this actually this morning uh, in the opening video which referred to God's sovereignty quite a bit but in reality what that video was talking about was an actually a different expression and they get confused a lot of times and the video this morning was really talking about God's providence and yet, the creators of the video use the word God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty and God's providence are two different things. They, they're interrelated, and that's why it's easy to get them kind of confused sometimes. And, and I guess maybe in some respects, we just kind of use it as shorthand because they are so interchangeable, but technically they're different, right? Uh, sovereignty, with God's sovereignty, it means that God has the right, the authority, the power, the ability to do whatever he decides to do. Okay, so uh, sovereignty is all about God's power and authority and the right to do whatever he wants to do. Because he's creator, he's God. Um, uh, J.I. Packer says that God's sovereignty is really talking about his dominion and that God's dominion is total. He wills as he chooses, he carries out all that he wills, and none can stay his hand or thwart his plans. We hear Job referring to God's sovereignty when he says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So you, you get this idea of just absolute power, absolute authority, absolute right to do whatever he wants to do. That's God's sovereignty. Providence is different. 
providence is God's sovereignty in the service of his wise and good purposes. It is God ordering and accomplishing everything necessary to bring about his purposes and plans. And so in that video, opening video that was talking about the time of fear and stress and, and God, God is sovereign, he's in control, but when he brings that sovereignty into our lives for good and he orders things and he takes care of us, Technically, that is his providence, okay? And so Isaiah speaks of this. God actually speaks of this about himself. He says, remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there's no other. I am God, and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. You know, God's sovereignty uh, gives us heartburn. And it can give us, you know, quite a few contradictory feelings and emotions, and it can confuse us. And especially as we've been looking here in Romans 9 and, and teaching just the absolute sovereignty of God in chapters 8 and 9, really, at the end of chapter 8, over all things. But John Piper, he brings this into perspective for us, and why us believing in God's absolute sovereignty in all things is so important. He poses it in the form of questions. He says, the question is, which world would you rather live in? One where humans or Satan or chance govern what happens to you, or one where an infinitely good, infinitely wise, infinitely powerful God works everything together for the good of those who trust him and for his glory. You know, in this section of Romans, we've been grappling with some of those questions that, uh, that uh, John Piper puts there uh, together. But at the end of chapter 8, as we talked about suffering and God's sovereignty and salvation, and chapter 9, it moved more and more into this, we began to take on some hard truths. And as we noted last week, sometimes the answer to those, those questions, uh, they're in the cloud, right? Gave you this picture last week of a mountain with the the peak covered in, in a cloud. And we can know much of God's sovereign will. It's revealed to us. It's the part of the mountain that we can see. We see it in God's word. We understand it as the Holy Spirit applies God's word to our lives, and we can perceive what his sovereign will is. But there's always a part of it that is in the cloud. It's, it's unknowable for us right now. We can't see it. We know it's there, we know he's carrying things out, but we can't know it. And that's, that's very hard. And sometimes God's sovereignty is hard because it directly comes up against and it attacks our presuppositions and our desires to be in control. This hard aspect of God's sovereignty we've captured the last couple of weeks in our takeaway truths. God faithfully accomplishes the salvation of those whom he has sovereignly chosen. And God's sovereignty, as we saw last week in salvation, challenges our fallen desires for self-lordship. Well, I have news for you. It doesn't get any easier this week because Paul is going to throw into the mix human responsibility. And this creates a perplexing paradox that uh, we need to noodle through this, this morning. You know, God faithfully accomplishes the salvation of those whom he's sovereignly chosen. God's sovereignty and salvation challenges our fallen uh, desires for self-worship. 
And then this week, I want us to see how God's sovereignty over everything does not eliminate human responsibility. These two truths run parallel in the scriptures, creating what is known as an antinomy. An antinomy is essentially a, a, a valid truth, two valid truths that uh, apparently contradict one another, that are in conflict with one another. They're both valid, they're both true. God is sovereign, humanity is responsible. These two truths are both valid, they both run through the scriptures, yet when you look at them as a whole, they seem to contradict themselves. And we see the second half of this antinomy, the human responsibility portion throughout our text this morning, and I want us to highlight it in three ways. First of all, in verses at uh, the beginning of chapter 10, let's see how we are responsible for God's condemnation and his judgment upon us. You know, our text this morning is actually bookended by a real example of why this first truth that we are responsible for God's, and when I say we, I'm talking about humanity as a whole, right? That we are responsible for God's condemnation and judgment upon us. We see it in the nation of Israel. At the beginning of our passage, in chapter 9, verse 30, Paul begins to ask some questions. What shall we say then? Why has only a remnant of Israel believed? And yet we see all of these Gentiles who are believing, and yet the Jews, the Israelites, are, are hardly believing at all. And at the end of the chapter, he asks it in a very blunt way. He says, have they not heard what God says? Does Israel just not understand? And he's, he's really setting us up with that question for what we'll see next week in chapter 11. I mean, here's the Israelites. They are zealous for God. Their zeal, however, it's misguided and it's ignorant. And it's condemning them to a horrible eternity. He says in verse 1 of chapter 10, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. The Israelites were God's chosen people. They had received the law and they had been the beneficiary of the prophets yet they were continually breaking their covenant with God so that at the end of the chapter in, in verse 21 he says all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people the Israelites are responsible for their disobedience to God they have zeal, but their zeal for God was the result of their own twisting of God's law. Their zeal for God was expressed through man-made religion, and they were focusing more upon the commands of the law and carrying out the commands of the law and then uh, amplifying them and applying them to all different forms of life. And they were so intent on creating this form of a religion which they could get their hands around, which they could obey and they could measure themselves by, that they missed the weightier aspects of the Old Covenant which teach that the just are to be lived by faith. Living by faith and relating to God through faith is not simply a New Testament concept. It's all through the Old Testament too. And the Israelites miss it because they take the revelation of God and they twist it into something that satisfied their internal need 
for self-lordship. They twist it into a works righteousness form of human religion and church human religion always results in God's condemnation and his judgment. You know, these opening verses, they kind of, they kind of repudiate a modern concept that, that we've seen in different ways over the years here in our nation, in our world. You know, God scoffs at our modern idea that what is important isn't so much what you believe, but that you believe. Have you ever heard that before? You know, it's a very tolerant-sounding statement. It's a statement that, you know, really makes you look magnanimous and open-minded. It's not so important what you believe, but that, that you believe. And, and this is ridiculous. Israel was so focused on obeying God's commands, they completely overlooked that we're to relate to him through faith. And while being zealous for doing good works and being known as a moral people, they completely reject the way of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Their allegiance to the law and to their religion and to their understanding of the law caused them to thoroughly reject the truth, which is in verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law. He's the completion. He's the culmination. He's the, the fulfillment and the climax of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so is, the Israel serves very much as an as a object lesson for all of humanity. In the same way, all of humanity is responsible for their rejection of the truth of God and the gift of Jesus Christ. John Frame is a, a long-time, uh, I think he's retired now maybe, a long-time professor at uh, RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. He's written extensively on God and the nature of God, characteristics, sovereignty of God, and human responsibility and freedom. And, and he points out that human responsibility has two components to it. It has the component of accountability and the component of liability. We all, every human being, is accountable to our Creator for willfully rejecting Him as He has revealed Himself. Our liability for that rejection is manifested in different ways, but for those who hear the gospel, this accountability is even more severe as it actually increases one's liability. You know, you see Jesus talking in the, in the Gospels about this to the Israelites. He says, if what I'm telling you had been told to other nations in years past, other cities in years past, they would have fallen to their knees in repentance and belief, and yet you reject, and as a result, your liability increases. So some this morning may very much be like the Israelites, Right? We hear the gospel. We hear the word of God. We know what it's saying. We intellectually are comprehending the truth of the gospel, yet we stumble. The same way the Israelites did, we stumble over Christ, trusting in Christ through faith and relating to God through faith, instead opting for self-righteousness, for work salvation. And so the person who stands before God on judgment day and hears his judgment of condemnation will have no one to blame, God says, but himself. Romans chapter 1, we looked at that early in the beginning of this series, last fall. Verses 20 and 21 make this clear that every human being who stands before God at his judgment will be without excuse. God says that we 
are responsible. We are responsible for his condemnation and his judgment upon us. Secondly, we are responsible to entrust ourselves to Jesus as Lord. You know, Paul is highlighting an, an incredibly tragic irony in this section of Romans. The people who knew the most about God, they reject God. And the people who knew the least about God and salvation, they, when they heard the gospel, they come pouring into the, the kingdom of God and they receive it and they accept it. And, and part of Paul's point is, why is this happening? Why, why is it that only a remnant of the Israelites believe, and yet all of these Gentiles are just pouring into the kingdom of God? Why is this? And he, and he answers that in part, it's not the only reason, but at least a reason, a, an important reason, is at the end of chapter 10 and verse 19, when he says, Mo, through Moses, God says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. We're going, to, we're going to get into this more next week in chapter 11, but just kind of by way of a preview, God is using the Gentiles and the bringing in of the Gentiles into the kingdom of God as a way to provoke the Israelites to reconsider their Messiah, that the one who they crucified on the cross was truly God in the flesh, their only hope for salvation. That, this is in part why it's happening, that the Gentiles are coming in, but how is it happening? How is it happening even today that so many Gentiles are entering the kingdom of God? Well, that's verses 9 to 13. It gives us the way. The way that any of us come into the kingdom of God is in these verses. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. These verses are important, church, because they reveal the way to salvation. These are verses that I have used uh, really ever since I was in junior high school. I always come to this passage when talking to someone who is perhaps not a Christian, who is investigating how to become a Christian, what does it mean to be a Christian. So you might want to circle these verses, underline them, get to know them. They're important because they reveal what must happen in order for any of us, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter our ethnicity if we're to come into the family of God. There's a few things that we have to know here. We must know what God says about us. He says something important about us in this passage. He says we must be saved. Now, that's, a, that's an expression of saved, but we get the idea here. When somebody's in trouble, maybe they're drowning or they're hurt or they're in danger, they may cry out, save me trying to alert people to rescue them. And God is saying that about us as human beings. Humanity needs to be rescued. We need to be saved. Saved from what? Our, our sin. The wages of our sin is death. It's separation from God. We all sin, fall short of the glory of God. We must know what God says about us. That we're sinners in need of rescuing. We also have to know who Jesus is and what he's done. 
It says at the very opening verses, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. That's incredibly important. That God raised him from the dead. That word Lord, uh, in the original language in Greek, is the word kurios. And that word, uh, when the Greeks interpreted the Old Testament, they used kurios wherever the word Yahweh would have been used in the Hebrew text. And in other words, rightly so, understanding that what the scriptures are communicating here is that Jesus is absolutely God who has taken on flesh. And he's walked among us. And what did he do? He lived the life that we were to live. He experienced all the, the weaknesses, the frailties of human flesh that we have, our temptations. He, he was tempted, yet he did not sin. And ultimately, he dies, he's buried, and as the passage says, he rose again. And we know he ascended to the Father and rules today. And this passage is telling us, you must know who Jesus is and what he's done. And then finally, believe it with our heart. And, and out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks and confesses. And, and that's what's going on here. It's talking about the entirety of our being when it's bringing in an idea of our heart and our mouth. It's saying with all that we are, we entrust ourselves to Christ. It's not just facts that we know, but it's the commitment of our lives to follow him, to trust in him alone for salvation. We're to believe in our heart that we need to be saved, and that Jesus is the only way we can have that salvation. Now listen, we can't do this unless God first brings us to life and gives us a heart. We looked at this last week that, that wants to believe in Jesus and can actually trust in him and turn from sin. This only happens because God, God does this. And why does God do this? Because he's what? Sovereign, right? He does it according to the good pleasure of his will. But don't miss the parallel truth. Don't miss the antinomy here. We're responsible to believe. We're responsible to entrust ourselves to Christ. Two truths. And they go parallel throughout the scriptures. God is sovereign over everything, including our salvation. And yet, we are responsible at the same time. We see this tension of these two truths being side by side throughout Scripture. We see it in the Old Testament when, when God chooses a nation like Assyria to, to carry out his judgment upon the Israelites, and then he holds the Assyrians responsible for the cruel and inhumane ways they carry out that judgment. See, numerous examples in the Old Testament of sovereignty and responsibility side by side, both truths being valid. You see it in the opening chapter of the Apostle John's Gospel. In John chapter 1, verse 12, we read, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. This is human responsibility, right? He gave the right to become children of God, who were born into the family of God, not of blood, not because of our lineage or our ethnicity, because we're a Jew or because we're a Gentile or because we're raised in a Christian home, nor of the will of the flesh, not because we actually wanted to at the beginning of this whole thing. We didn't want God at all. We didn't seek after him. We didn't desire him. It was, we were born 
not of the will of ourselves, of man, but of God. One, two little verses, you see both here. We are responsible to receive and believe what the gospel says, and at the same time, the reason why this occurs is because God works within us. John Frame, in his writings on this subject, he summarizes it in a great way. He says that we are responsible to seek salvation. We must make a decision to serve the Lord. You see this in Joshua 24. We must receive Christ, John 1. We must believe in him, John 3, 16. We must repent, believe, and be baptized, Acts chapter 2. As we have seen, God chooses us before we choose him. His choice brings ours about. But we must choose nevertheless. And if we do not make the right choice, we will not be saved. So I ask you this morning, do you agree with God that you need a Savior and that Jesus is that Savior? Have you entrusted yourself to Jesus Christ? You know, the, the truth of the gospel, the scandal of the gospel is the simplicity of it. Unlike the Israelites, we do not have to work for this acceptance. It's a matter of faith. There's no magical formula here. It's just a simple expression of the desire of your heart. Even though we're not in each other's presence, in the privacy of your living room right now, or wherever you're watching this video, you can come into the family of God. You can entrust yourself to Christ. You can pray something simple. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I need to be saved and rescued from my sin. I believe you're God. I believe you died and rose again for me. I commit my life to you. I want you to be my Lord, my Savior. If you've never expressed that desire, I want to encourage you to do so. From the heart you believe and the mouth confesses, Jesus is Lord. We're responsible for God's condemnation and judgment of us. We are responsible to entrust ourselves to Jesus as Lord. And finally this morning, we're responsible to communicate the gospel to those who need it. Verse 14 says, How then will they call on him and whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This week, as I contemplated, you know, these verses, in some respects, I probably, my thoughts went a direction because my dad's birthday was within the last few days, and, and uh, he's been passed away now for, I guess, 11 years, and uh, he'd be uh, 92 now, or 91, yeah, 91, and, um, and I was just thinking about how blessed my wife Catherine and I have been. We're incredibly blessed that God gave us parents who took these verses to heart. And they, and they did it in very distinct ways. And they set an example for us that is a blessing to us now into our, in, well into our adult here, adulthood. 
You know, first of all, they brought the gospel to us as children. Our earliest memories are hearing the gospel, singing Christian songs and the hymns and children's songs that are Christian songs, learning our alphabet based upon Bible verses and, and talking about God's word and talking about sin and our sin. And even when we were disciplined at being brought back to our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. And with both of us, we were led to Christ by our parents. And then I thought, secondly, how, and, and this is true about both of our parents, our sets of parents, they were active um, ambassadors for Jesus Christ who proclaimed the good news. They were heralds. They, they had beautiful feet, as this passage is talking. This passage is talking about you and me, not just people that are professional you know, pastors or evangelists or missionaries. This is talking about every Christian being a herald, a proclaimer of the good news. And those who do so, we have beautiful feet. And our parents, they had beautiful feet. They led other family members to Christ. They led neighbors to Christ, friends to Christ. Our parents took advantage of the opportunities God gave us. And then, this is the case again, our parents were actively involved in spreading the gospel around the world. My parents have passed away, but I know that my dad, when he was converted and he became a Christian, he began to not only give a, a tenth of his income to the local church for its mission, but then he gave another tenth of his income to our church's missions ministry. And, and not wealthy at all, <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. Oh, we were not wealthy. But they so believed that God wanted to use them to spread the gospel around the world. Catherine's parents, my father-in-law, he'll be here in a few weeks and love him. And my mother-in-law, he walked away from a very successful pastorate to, to take over a failed missions agency that now helps you know, new converts and missionaries by the thousands every year, believing that the most important thing we can do with our lives is to have beautiful feet as proclaimers, going and sending those who can go. And so I think our personal journey of faith for Catherine and I is in part responsible why we, we believe so strongly in our church's mission and the vision of our church, our mission to, to bring gospel restoration to people's deepest needs in our broken world. And we want to see that manifested in specific ways. You know, our parents led us to Christ, and we had the pleasure of leading our children to Christ. And we want that same pleasure and that same honor to be experienced by our families here at Covenant. And so our mission and vision involves you learning and actually proclaiming the gospel and leading your children to Jesus and to the throne of God as their, as their chief disciples, the, the people who evangelize them. We want to see us as a church having beautiful feet, as heralds, as we walk into the world proclaiming to our neighbors, to our friends. We want, we're hoping that God will use us to see 50 adults come to know Christ through us witnessing to them and seeing them come to know Jesus. And let's understand something, church. When, when you lead a, a, a husband or a father, a, a mother, a wife to Christ, oftentimes... That sets off a chain reaction in that family. 
And so while we're praying and working to 50, we expect God to do more than this because he's making all things new in this world. And then, of course, we look, we saw just a couple of weeks ago, churches that we're trying to plant. There are 50 churches that we want to see established by 2028. And we have one down in Bayside, and our brothers with Ben and that church that we're planting, we want to see them locally, we want to see them around the world we need to be praying for these churches. Some of them are going through severe persecution, as Jonathan highlighted last week. One of our churches that we've helped plant in India, the pastors have been arrested. The, the Hindus are on a, on a campaign against them and Christianity, and it's getting ugly. We need to pray for these folks. This passage puts before us the God-given mandate to be his ambassadors as ambassadors for Christ to send people to other places in the world to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim it ourselves in our own backyard where we live and where we work. And you say, well, how can we do that right now when we're practicing social distancing, right? But you know, one of the things about COVID-19 and the, the pandemic that we're facing it's something else, isn't it? I was asked the other day, you know, is this God's judgment upon the world? And uh, I was a little snarky. I said, yes, he sent me an email that let me know uh, that that was what he was doing. I, I have no way <laughs> of knowing. But we do know from scriptures that oftentimes plagues and things like this were God expressing judgment upon a people, upon a nation, upon a world, but also it creates an opportunity. And we need to understand that while we, we don't, God's sovereign, we don't know what he's up to with this pandemic. We know he's in control, right? And we know he's going to see us through, and we know that he's good. And we also do know something else, that these types of situations are used by God to create opportunities for the gospel. You know, when people are faced with an existential crisis. And if you haven't noticed, there's a lot of fear in our world today because of this existential crisis. When people are faced with an existential crisis, they begin asking existential questions. And guess who has the answer to those existential questions? We do. We have the gospel. We have the hope for eternity to which COVID-19 poses no threat at all. So this week, I pray that for all of us as a church, that God will make us a people with beautiful feet that takes the opportunities given and proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, help us to be those types of people, not bound by fear, but taking advantage of the opportunities that you present to us. God, give us eyes that can see even in times when there's caution, there are opportunities to make connections with neighbors, to have deeper conversations with our children because we're stuck in a house with them all day long. But this gives us the opportunity to, to talk about more serious matters in life, to, to use moments throughout the day to point them to, to you, Lord, and to your goodness and to the grace that comes through you. Father, I pray for our nation. I pray for our world. Lord, as we see what's happening around us with this pandemic, it breaks our hearts. 
We see people losing their lives of all age groups, and it's heartbreaking. God, we ask that you would heal our land, that you would heal our world, that you would, Lord, make all things new. And as much as we want a healing to be physical from this pandemic, Lord, even more importantly, I ask that you would heal us spiritually. And may you use us in some way to bring that about here in our little corner of the world here in Palm Bay, in Melbourne, Florida. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.